Well, it's good to see your faces this morning. I am Brian Alquist. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, I am blessed this week to, to let you know that we're going to start a two-week series on belonging or connection, connecting with others. And um, I'm going to do part one. Matt's going to do part two. And when we were uh, planning this, we drew straws, and I got the short stick, so I've got the bad news. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Yeah. I got the bad news, and uh, Matt's got the good. So uh, he definitely dressed appropriately, you know. We're going to be discussing what it looks like to truly connect with God and with people. And and for this first part, I'm going to address connection a little differently. I want to talk about disconnection. Disconnection. Because directly or indirectly, we've all had issues with disconnecting with people. Am I right? Three of us? Yeah, everybody else has got to figure it out? Okay, no problems here. When's Matt speaking? Yeah. (laughs) Look, we've all, we've all had issues with this. Have you ever said the wrong thing at the wrong time? Okay, yeah, okay, there we go. More than two of us. Good, good. Uh, Years and years ago, I I was working at a hospital, and uh, I was on break. And so we're kicking back in the break room, and I love watching comedians. I love good stand-up acts. And and, uh, the, the room was full, and we were talking about this comedian that some of us had just seen. And we loved this guy. He was so funny. And there was this one part where he was comparing uh, contestants from Jeopardy to contestants from Wheel of Fortune. Okay? So over here in Jeopardy, you've got, hi, this is uh, Dr. Linda Brown. She's a neurosurgeon at the University of Wisconsin and on her spare time reanimates dead tissue to recreate brains and life. Right? And then over here at the Wheel of Fortune, you've got Bob, right? Bob likes things that glow, okay, and hopes to become a real Jedi Knight someday. You know, and we're just laughing, having a good time, until I noticed my friend uh, Janice in the corner, who's a, she's a respiratory therapist, she's got her arms crossed just looking at me like, and I'm like, oh, what, Jan- are, what, are you a Wheel of Fortune fan, is that it? <laughs> And she just looks at me and she goes, oh, oh, oh yeah, I'm a fan. In fact, I've been on it. <laughs> and then I said something really witty like, oh, interesting but not funny, right? <laughs> Six episodes, like 200 grand. Can you believe that? And she brought him to work the next day and maybe watched some of it. <laughs> oh, she was, and she was mad. She was hurt. I said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. I felt like a jerk. I felt like a jerk. I did ask for forgiveness at at, at some point. But whether it's a coworker, a family member, a buddy, a, a friend, we like to connect with others. We have this desire to belong, to form relationships, to find belonging. And we're like this because we have God's image in us. You see, God is love. We, we, call, we call God, that he, he's also the Trinity, right? And, and love really makes sense to me because if God was, uh, wasn't part of the Trinity, uh, how could he love? In, in theology, it's called perichoresis, a mutual indwelling. He, he, he has this relationship, this beautiful, fulfilling relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he put that image in us. That's why when he created Adam and Eve, he looked at Adam, Adam when, and there was no sin on earth. There was no fall yet. He looked at Adam and he said, boy, it's not good that this guy's alone. And that's in each of us. That is in us. That is why we long to belong. We need people. So I can't 
help but to ask, why is it that we struggle with this? On one hand, we need to belong, we need to connect, but on the other, we can be so selfish and inconsiderate. We can mock others. We can make a a joke of them. We can be hurtful. It's like we have a little angel on our shoulder that says, be loving and kind and accepting. Don't mock the wheel of fortune, Brian. All right? And then there's a little demon sitting on the shoulder over here going, mock it. Make fun of it. It makes you feel better. Take, take what that person has. Take what they got. It's all about you. And, and I want to argue today that there is actually some truth in this, okay? There's actually some truth in this. The angel sees the good. The devil wants it. The devil wants that. Whatever kind of power, whatever kind of authority that good might have, he wants it. He wants to control it. So I want to argue that there's actually some truth to that little image of the little angels on your shoulder. And I'd like to propose to you today that that how we see others will definitely, most definitely, lead to how we treat them. How we see them will lead to how we treat them. And it'll certainly influence how well we connect with them, how how well we find belonging with them. You see, if you see someone as worthy and valued, it's easy to be loving and to be kind. But if you see them as flawed, if you just say, that person's flawed, that person is broken, it is easy to judge them. It is easy to condemn them. It's easy to put them down because they don't have any worth or value. And I want to argue that we don't just do this to people. I believe we do this to God. That's why today's message, if you, if you grabbed an outline, it's called Judging God and Judging Others, The Great Disconnect. Judging God and judging others. But before I go further into this, I, I want to take a second just to pray because this is a really, really important uh, that we understand this today. Let's pray. Father, I, oh, this, this is such a profound topic, connection, and so I need your help. I need your clarity. I pray that each of us would leave here challenged today and that that challenge would bring us into a closer relationship with you and eventually others. So, Father, uh, use me. I pray that my words are yours. And, God, I I know that you fight for us. You do. And so, Lord, fight for us now. Just get rid of the darkness in here and just fill this place with your presence and your Holy Spirit. Open our ears. Open our eyes. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. This uh, phrase is on your outline. It's going to be up on the screen, too. It says this, Harsh judgment and condemnation finds its origin in evil. Harsh judgment and condemnation finds its origin in evil. That's where it was birthed. That's where it began. Its ultimate purpose is to isolate its user and its victims from knowing love. That's its ultimate purpose. You know, Scripture teaches that in the distant past before creation of the cosmos, or at least probably before it, there was a great rebellion See, God had created the angels, and I believe certainly with free will, because some of the angels rebelled against God. The strongest of all the, all the angels was a guy named Lucifer. And he took a great number of angels with him, and they actually fought against God. In fact, Isaiah 14 tells us, plain and simply, that Satan wanted God's throne. He wanted to sit in the place of God himself. He wanted to say so. He wanted the power. So Satan abandoned God's love approach. He walked away from that. 
He abandoned that. He wanted to lay down the law and to create his own rules and to have his own power. And this isn't, you guys, this isn't a yin and a yang thing, you know, where one side needs the other. It's not that. This is a battle for two very separate, very different kingdoms. One of those kingdoms is centered on love and belonging and connection, and the other kingdom (laughs) lacks any love-motivated behavior at all. It centers on power. It centers on control. It centers on law, and it uses evil to achieve it. When you read through scripture, not only in Isaiah, but Ephesians, I think of Ephesians 6, 1 John 5, Revelations 12, and other passages, it tells us that this battle continues till today. There's some of the bad news. <sighs> but it's true. This battle continues today. Satan is warring against God. On one hand, you've got God. And he desires this beautiful connection, this love relationship with us where we can be loved, uh, where we can love and, and, and be loved, where we can know and be known, where we truly can connect with him. And I believe this is most clearly seen in John 17, in Jesus' prayer before facing the cross. Read it sometime. It's absolutely profound. At one point, he actually prays that, that not only would we as his followers be one with each other, but that we would be one with him and his father, that we could be part of that triune love, that we could experience what it's like to be in the presence of true love all the time. He created us to share in his love. He created us to connect and belong. But when it comes to this war, the purpose of Satan is very simple. It's to work against God's purposes. That's his focus. That's his aim simply to work against God's purposes. So if God values connection, Satan won't. We just sang about God being beautiful. So if God is beautiful, Satan is ugly. If God is holy, Satan is evil. If God is about love, sacrifice, and connection, Satan will be about law, control, and isolation. Satan's hope is for you and for me to disconnect with anything that looks and acts and feels like love. That's his aim. That's his hope. Now, we know in Scripture that early in human history, mankind got caught up in Satan's rebellion. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? The serpent, who was Satan, offered them a bite of some fruit. We always see it as the apple, the apple they bit into. Isn't it interesting, and he did, he got Adam and Eve to bite into it and rebel. Isn't it interesting that that fruit came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Think about that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He got them to eat it by tempting them. He said, you guys, look, you'll be like God if you take a bite of that thing. You will decide what's right and wrong. You get to judge. You get the power. You get the control. You get the authority. Take a bite. Take a bite. And ever since we humans, boy, we have been (laughs) using our knowledge of good and evil to judge each other and to judge God. Time and time and time. There's so much more I could say about that. I'm just limited in time. So what I want to center on is this. It's very, very simple. Satan's strategy of disconnection is to get us to judge. 
to eat that fruit, to take a bite. You decide. You have the power. You take control. You have the authority. He wants us to take a bite of that. This approach of Satan's, I believe, has been his core strategy since the beginning. He's hoping that he will eventually disconnect you from God and from others. Because when we reject God, who is good and holy, we fall into sin, and that leads into big trouble. Because even Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus said that in John 8. If you sin, you're a slave to it. And if Satan can get us to sin, like Adam and Eve, with the aim of being like God, he gets us to look more and more and more like him, more and more evil. Scripture teaches Jesus wants us to look like him. Well, Satan has the same goal. He wants us to look more and like him, more and more evil, more and more dark, more and more sinister. And that is a great strategy of disconnection in life and from life. So let's look at three ways that Satan achieves this disconnection. Boy, happy message so far, huh? Thanks, Brian. Isn't July 4th coming? Are we supposed to have a party? Now, this is good stuff. I promise it's going to end well, but you've got to stay to the end. Look, there's three ways that Satan is going to strategize a disconnection. The first one is this. He turns us against God. This is what we were just talking about. It's what he did to Adam and Eve. Satan lies. He's a liar. He stood before Adam and Eve, and he said this. He said, look, God's a petty God. That God you, that you're following around in the garden... I don't know how Satan talked them into this. I mean, they were living in the garden, you know, kind of a permanent newlywed, you know, couple. No work. And they're just hanging out, doing whatever newlyweds do all day long, you know, that kind of thing. And Satan's like, hey, this is really a bummer. You don't want to live this life, you know. Let me tell you, God is only interested in power. He's only interested in control. It's not fair that he has it all. You guys deserve more. You deserve more. And so Satan's lying to them. He's trying to turn them against God. That's why in Genesis 3, he said, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? He made them start questioning God from the start. Is God really for you? I mean, did he really say that? And then he goes on to say, you know, God, you think God said you, you die? You won't die. You won't die. Take a bite. In verse 5 it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Take a bite. Take a bite. And he drew him in. And who wouldn't want to be like God? We have entire religions that have that focus. You get to be like God someday if you just do this. That lie leads them into an action that turns them against God. And that hurts God. So Satan loves it. He loves it. In Job, the first chapter of Job, Job is this guy who really is a pretty godly guy. And in the Old Testament, the story of him is really profound. It's very beautiful. God is, is up, basically up in the heavens and all these angels come before him and one of them is Satan. And, and he says to them, he goes, you know what, uh, uh, you guys, uh, have you looked at my, my servant Job? Job? He's, he's just amazing. And what does Satan do right away? He begins to accuse God. He makes God look like the bad guy. He says, he says look, God, does, does Job love you for free? I mean, come on. You gave him a great marriage. He's got tons of stuff, a beautiful home. You know, beautiful, he drives a great Hummer. He's amazing. 
He's got this great life. Why would he be, why would he, you know, why wouldn't he follow you? You give him everything. You take that away and he won't follow you. God, you're just manipulating Job for the sake of loyalty. That's who you are. That's what you do. You just manipulate for the sake of loyalty. That is Satan saying this right to God's face. Attacking him. Turning people against him. I believe one of the most basic core strategies that Satan has is to get us to see God as the bad guy. Get us to see God as the bad guy. It's kind of like God is the evil stepmother, right? Or more like you've had an evil stepmother and and because she has power and authority, you can't deal with her, so you displace all that frustration on anger and you blame him and say, God, my life is so bad. You have the authority. You have the power. Why couldn't you change it? You stink. It's your fault. Satan loves that. That is his strategy. Over and over again, you see that in Scripture. He wants us to shift all our anger, all of our frustration towards God. Satan wants us to confuse God with him. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. God's the cause of your hurt. He ordained it. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. Let's reject God. Join me. Let's reject him. Man, and not only does this hurt God because he loves us so much, it certainly helps Satan's cause to further us from God. Number two, we naturally disconnect from God and others if we learn to practice judgment and condemnation. We will look more like Satan if we practice judgment and condemnation. Not only does Satan want us to turn on God, but he wants us to just look like little Satans. Do you know the purpose of the church is, is, is kind of to, to, well it is, it's to look like Jesus. So once again, Satan, the purpose of his followers is to get them to look like him. To further their judgment and condemnation. A great example of this is John 8. Uh, verses this, I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. This is a profound story. It says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, who was there too, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Think about that. I mean, they literally walked in on her and then dragged her out here to be stoned. She was caught in the act of adultery. So they made her stand before the group and they, and they condemned, condemned her. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? In verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So not only are they accusing her, they want to accuse Jesus. In my opinion, they probably brought two stones. One for Jesus, one for her. You know what? When judgment is cleaned and it is polished and it is looking good, do you know what it most looks like? Religious legalism. Religious legalism. It's ugly. It's ugly because it centers on flaws rather than love. And rather than finding belonging, its ugliness isolates and condemns. Oh, Jesus called the Pharisees the whitewashed tombs, right? They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were just dead bones, full of hate, full of self-focus. In fact, Jesus himself pointed out that the Pharisees were sons of hell 
And he said, when you guys succeed in making disciples, they're twice the sons of hell that you are. That's what Jesus said. These guys were dark. So when Satan is teaching them, I guess what they're really learning is that nothing really can make you look better when you make someone else look bad. When you put that person down. It feels great when you find someone else who's blown it bigger than you, and it feels even better when you get to judge that person for it. They're so evil. They shouldn't have done that. Those Pharisees. Those Pharisees. What jerks, right? But here's the sad thing, you guys. Here's the sad thing. Here's the bad news. It's not just the Pharisees who give in to this. It's not. How many times have we acted this way with people we know or with people we don't know? How many times have we judged them in our hearts and in our minds, condemning them? We might be, not be throwing stones, but we're throwing some hurtful thoughts and some hurtful words. Like this person right here. You know who she reminds me of? My mean third grade teacher. So I can't help but to think, caution, stay away from her, so I don't want to talk to you. I don't. She was too mean. Teachers are mean. I don't like them. And this guy, I don't think so. Politician. Mm -hmm. Full of poop. (laughs) Right? Promises they can't keep. It's unfair. They get paid by, by the rest of us, but they can't keep their promises. Sickens me. And you, do you know what a drag you are to our culture? Do you? I don't want my kids around you. You're a junkie. Why can't you get a job? Why can't you get off the alcohol and drugs? What is your problem, huh? Right? Can't stand those guys near the freeway. I always had to explain that to my kids. Makes me sick. Then there's the people we do know. Perhaps we're the most harsh with them. Do you know the pain you caused our family? Do you? I stood next to my brother when you said, Till death do us part, but you couldn't go two years in that marriage. Why couldn't you be faithful to him? You have no idea, do you? You know, women like you, you're just trash. Ugly, isn't it? Ugly. Totally apart from love. Practicing judgment and condemnation, it only leads to isolation. That's all it does. It isolates. It isolates through those words, through those actions. I had no love-motivated behavior for any of them. The only thing I see now, I don't see any people. You know what? One of them's a hazard cone. That's all. Another one, a toilet full of junk. The other one, a hazmat barrel. The junkie. And the last one, just a can of trash. That is all we see when we condemn and judge. We stop seeing the person. And the more I do that, 
the more isolated and by myself I become, the more separated I become from them. In fact, I become just a little Pharisee trying to get more and more life from condemning and judging other people because that's the only thing I know. You guys don't fall for it. Think about all the little ways we do this to the people we know. Don't fall for it. This is part of Satan's strategy. It really is. Lastly, Satan's strategy is this. His hope is to either blind us to what I just covered. His hope is to either blind us or remind us of our failure. Blind us or remind us of our failures. That's what his hope is. Satan functions completely apart from goodness and love. He judges. He's blind to, to love. He can't do that. And so are the Pharisees. Jesus, again, he referred to the Pharisees as blind guides that just lead other people right into a hole. That's what Jesus said about them. But have you ever wondered why they're so blind? I mean, do you, when, when I read the New Testament, I think, okay, if I was a Pharisee and I'm hanging out with Jesus and, and I'm just watching him and I'm like, wow, uh, he just grew an arm out of that man's you know, stump. Or, hmm, that person was dead and now Jesus brought them back to life. You think you'd at least wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if that guy might be God. I mean, how often, do, do, how often does the pastoral staff, you know, do I ever grab Pastor Tom, we head downtown, go to the morgue and just resurrect everyone, come back, you know? <laughs> well, our membership's up by 30 people, we did some resurrections this weekend. <laughs> no, it just blows my mind that the Pharisees couldn't see this. Jesus was performing miracles, and they were blind to it. Why? And I think I know why. It's because they were great at being religious, when it came to law, when it came to rules, when it came to regulation, they were at the top and everyone else was under them. Why give that up? Why give that power up? Why get that control up? Why not just hold on to that authority? That's why they loved it so much. Jesus threatened that. Why would they leave it? They have all the favor and control they can get. Now, if, if Satan can't blind us, He'll remind us. He'll remind us the way I reminded each of these people of their faults and problems. He will declare us trash. He will declare us junk. And he'll remind you of that. A really profound story is found in in Zechariah 3. I encourage you to read just the first four verses. It's really amazing. I'm going to paraphrase it. But basically, it's one of these, um, I don't know, one of these sessions with the Lord again. And God is standing there with some of the angels, and, and Zechariah the prophet is there, and Satan's there. And you know what Satan's doing? He's going, hey, God, look at his dirty clothes. Isn't that sick? How can he stand before you with dirty clothes? You know, and, and the, the symbolism in that is it's his sin. And you know, God doesn't go, oh, man, Lucifer, you're right. Uh, you know what? Let's just burn him. Let's take him out. Let's fry him. You know what he says? He says this to Satan, and, and I, I just, I, I love this. He, he rebukes Satan, and he says, is this, is this not the man uh, the, uh, that who was a burning stick snatched from the fire? In other words, what God is saying is, how dare you point out the sin of my servant? If I say he's clean, he's clean, 
don't accuse him. Don't do it. But Satan, that's what he does. He doesn't understand love-motivated behavior. He wants to accuse. Look at his dirty clothes, God. How can he stand before you? He wanted Zechariah isolated from God. And the truth is, he wants each of us isolated from God. That's why in Revelations 12, even at the end of time, God reminds us that Satan has spent all of his existence, all of his existence, accusing us day and night. Look at that filth. Look at those clothes. Doesn't that make you sick? That's his job. That's what he wants us to look like and to be like. And when we buy into, us, into this, when we buy into that we're just trash, we just shut down. Because if you don't think you're worth anything, you're not going to share anything with anyone. You're not going to connect with anyone. I have to deal with this when I counsel couples in marriage. Sometimes one of them just feels like they have nothing to share. And I'm like, that's not true. You have eternal worth and value. You do have something to share in this relationship. But Satan loves to teach us that we don't. And if he can't blind us, he will accuse us. He will remind us. Now, I told you next week Matt uh, is going to go over the good news, but I've got to steal some of his thunder this morning. i got to do it. I want to talk about step one to recovery. How do you deal with this? How do you start to reconnect? And I believe the, the first step is just to admit that you've got a problem. Just to admit that you've got a problem. You see, if, if we're going to reconnect with God and others, there has to be some sort of admission. Some sort of admission that at some level we've participated in, in the rebellion. And maybe it, it's not some huge outrageous sin, but maybe it, it, just maybe it falls in the realm of judgment and condemning, and hurting others, just maybe. Uh, I want to deal with this by, by reading the rest of the story in John 8, because it's beautiful, and has a beautiful ending. So if you remember, this woman gets dragged out, there's all these people holding rocks, okay Jesus, we're supposed to, we're supposed to stone her. Verse 7 says this, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Nobody really knows what he was writing, but he's writing. When they kept on questioning him, could you imagine that? Come on, you're the rabbi. Let's go. Let's stone. Come on. That's what God wants. God wants us to stone this person. She's evil. Look at, she's so dirty. Let's stone her. And then he straightens up and he says to them, and oh, I love this. What a Jesus moment. He says, well, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stopped and started writing on the ground again. Are you sinless? Okay, go ahead. Chuck the stone. I've always wondered what he wrote. It made me wonder if he started writing the names of the men who, who had slept with this gal, who were standing there holding the stone. It made me wonder if he was writing some of the sins of, of these people that were holding those rocks waiting to stone this woman. In verse 9, it says this, At this, those who heard, those who heard, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. <laughs> They're like, okay, I know that's not me. Bye-bye. 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And then Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? And listen to what he says. Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now, according to the law, she sinned. Satan can stand before God and say, she's guilty. But what does Jesus say? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Oh, Lord, help us to to see this this morning. Help us to get this, because this is the good news. This is the good news. Isn't it great how Jesus did the right thing at the right time? He did the right thing at the right time. That's what love does. That's what love does. He got these people to think about their own stuff, their own guilt, but he did it without, he did it without condemning them. He really did. He didn't stand up and just start verbally pointing everybody's junk out. He just said, hey, if this is you, you can throw the first rock. I just thought that is so profound and, and so wise. If you're free from sin, throw the first stone. Well, here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to put yourself in that story, okay? I want you to imagine that you brought that rock or those rocks. Imagine that for a second. Except it's not the woman. It's someone you don't like. Do you have someone you don't like? Anybody? You know, that kind of thing. I'm not saying, you know, you come up here and give me some examples. I'm just saying in your head right now, in your head right now, pick someone that you're judging, that you're having issues with right now. Someone that you think should be punished. Now put yourself in that story. Imagine Jesus saying what he said, and you do. You put your rock down. You drop it with everybody else, because everybody else, beginning with the old guys, dropped it, right? So then you better drop mine too. And you all start walking home. What's going through your mind? What's that walk home like? I'd imagine there'd be one of three things going through our minds. The first one would be resentment. I should have thrown it. Do you know what that person did to me? Do you have any idea what that person did to me? I should have thrown that. You know what? The next chance I get, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to take that person out. That could be one. That could be one thing we're thinking. The second thing could be this. Maybe instead of resentment, you really just kind of wanted to run. Because you heard that Jesus had this gift of reading minds and knowing hearts, and the last thing you needed was the big reveal. I don't need Jesus pointing out my junk. Thank you. Otherwise, I'm going to be standing next to that person getting stoned too. So I'm just out of here. I don't want to get pointed out. I'm splitting. We'll deal with this later. But maybe, oh, maybe, maybe you realize that this is an opportunity to be set free. Maybe if, uh, maybe if Jesus can say that to that person, can say that to her, maybe he'll say that to me because I know I'm guilty. I know it. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. God, I've just, uh, it, it's so important we understand this, you guys. Jesus doesn't condemn us. Jesus doesn't accuse us. That is Satan's job. You know what? In in John 8, I read this earlier. I at least quoted it. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Okay? Well, read the rest of it. It's awesome. It says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. In other words, a, a slave is just a property to whatever, whoever owns it, right? It can't, uh, someone who's a slave cannot live as they truly are. They're trapped. But the last verse, verse 36, says this. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. And that is good news, you guys. And listen to how Paul, and this is, oh, this is so important. Listen to how Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says this about Jesus, verse 14. He says, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you understand what I'm saying? The sins you have committed, the things you are guilty for are gone. And he just didn't die for them. He wiped it out. It would be like you getting busted for speeding. So Jesus said, well, I'm just removing that law. It's gone now. That is the level of freedom that Paul is talking about here. And this is the profound thing. And this is the thing, oh, I just hope you get. I hope you get. Verse 15. Okay? In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's, that's what Paul uses to describe Satan and his followers. He shamed them publicly by the victory over them on the cross. Satan's only weapon against you was your sin. But Jesus took that to the cross. It's gone. Satan has no power. He has no authority. He is full of empty, hot air when he accuses you. Is that good news? I think that's good news. I think that's beautiful news. God, Jesus removed our debt to initiate connection with God. That's why in Romans uh, uh, chapter 8 verse 1 it says there's no condemnation in Christ. We are free. We are free, you guys. When we know Jesus Christ, we're free. It's not as if you were free or as if you were new. You are free in Jesus. Satan is full of lies. The, con the condemnation that you hear is from the enemy. It's garbage. That is the garbage. That is the junk. That's the poop. The truth is, God is our savior, our rescuer. He's our hero. He is fighting Satan because Satan's working against his purposes. God's hope is that none shall perish. None. That's his hope for us. You know why I'm so passionate about this? Because I've thrown those rocks. I've tried to use that power of authority and I've learned that the life I get from that is nothing like the life I get from Jesus Christ and walking with him in forgiveness and in love. I'm tired of seeing the flaws. I want to see the value. And that comes from knowing Christ. That leads to connection. That leads to belonging. I want to invite the band to come back out and, and uh, the ushers to come forward. You know, it says this in, in uh, Psalms 34. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're not going to taste judgment. You're not going to taste condemnation. That is Satan's job. God's job is to say, I love you. I died for you. Don't let Satan lie to you. Don't let Satan deceive you. Don't let Satan tear you apart. Because there's good news. You can have life and you can have it to the full through Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you want to begin that relationship with Jesus, it's just, it's a simple decision that has to take place in here. And when we do that, man, you guys grow aware of, of how Satan has nothing against you. Not a thing. Nothing. He can't accuse you anymore. 
he can't blame you. And if you're ready for that, just say this prayer with me right now. We'll just bow our heads and I'm just gonna pray. Lord, you know what? God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of isolating myself and, and others from you and from others because of the sin in my life, because of the judgment and condemnation. And I've always felt like I'm just not good enough. God, I'm not good enough. But now I know, now I see that you died for that reason and that you see me with eternal worth and value. You see me not as a slave, but as, as your son or as your daughter. You see me as family, so I give my life to you. I commit it to you right now, Jesus. I'm yours. I surrender. I give to you everything, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says there's a party in heaven. There's some worshiping going on. So let's do this. Uh, with the ushers here, you can get your tithe or your giving ready, and uh, we're going to give while we serve. And I'll come up and share a couple of thoughts. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when Jesus saves us, our sin is as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. We're new. We're forgiven. We're free. We're in relationship with God. Satan hates that. He wants you to listen to him. He wants you to turn against God. He wants you to judge and condemn. He wants to blind you or he wants to remind you of your junk from your past. But Jesus says, no way, I love you. I love you, I want a relationship with you. Let's connect, let's, let's belong. I want to be one with you guys the way the Father and I are one. I want to connect with you, that's my hope, that's my prayer. And that's what I hope you fight for this week, you guys. When you're being condemned, when you're being judged, when you feel like you're just a loser and you're broken, that is the enemy. Embrace the truth that Jesus Christ loves you and that you're new. You're new in him. Let me pray for you. Father, bless these guys this week and I pray that when they leave here, they make a choice, Father, to, to fight on your side, to remember who they are in you, a, a new creation. There's no condemnation, Lord. You are in a love relationship with us and, and all that judgment, all those voices, that's the enemy. Help us to see Satan for who he is. Paul said that we weren't unaware of the devil's schemes. Help us this week to be aware of those schemes. And I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for coming this morning.